Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. This is Chris Yeh, and I am joined today by Blitzscaling Ventures' Scott Johnson for another in our installment of Looking at the Blitzscalability of Venture Deals. How are you doing today, Scott? Feeling good, Chris. Thanks for asking. Glad to be here. So which deals are we covering today? Which month is it that we're going over? Well, this is April 2020. And so it's the first real month of COVID uh, depressed activity. Uh, at least you'd think it would be COVID depressed, but the number of deals that got announced was very high. It was uh, 77 deals announced. And that's just in our universe that we look at at Blitzscaling Ventures. So we have a cadre of 30 venture funds who we track and they clocked a fair number of deals this month, really just in line with other months. So didn't see a downtick at all in the number of deals. And the quality was uh, what you'd expect from the, the venture funds we tracked, very high. We found about 10 deals that were, you know, maybe blitz scalable, worth talking about. And we picked three of those, not necessarily the most blitz scalable ones, but the three that we found would create the most interesting discussion. So I'm really looking forward to today's deals. The, the deals themselves are Stripe, which we all know, Props, which is a virtual currency for apps, and Trash Warrior, which is a great name for a two-sided marketplace in the waste disposal business. Well, I'm very curious about what the numbers will look like next month, which is to say in June, because we'll be seeing deals that will definitely have occurred during the COVID-19 period. After all, the deals being announced in April might very well have been conducted in March or even February, depending on if there's a lag. But by the time we get into June deals, those will certainly be deals that were done during the time of COVID. So that will be a very illustrative month. They'll probably be coming up in a couple of weeks. Well, no, well, we'll do May in a couple of weeks and then June. We haven't done, uh, we, this is April. So then we'll do right. May and then we'll do June. That's usually how the months go. Yep. No, what I'm saying is that our June, <laughs> our June broadcast covering May deals will be very illustrious. Oh, right, right, right. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. All right. So back to Stripe. You know, at first glance, Stripe is just this embedded sort of API. How is that a blitz scaling company, Chris? Explain that to me. Yeah, so Stripe, of course, is an enormously successful company, and Patrick Collison, the co-founder and CEO, is actually one of the people that came and spoke to our original Blitzscaling class at Stanford way back in 2015, and Stripe has only gotten more prominent and more powerful since then. So the interesting thing about Stripe is it really does bring into play a lot of network effects and land grab, as well as viral growth and distribution. And the combination of these two things makes it a fairly blitz-scalable company. The interesting thing is it's not 100% blitz-scalable, and we'll talk about that, but it is still fairly blitz-scalable. On the network effects and land grab side, the key is that Stripe is embedded into all of these different apps and all these different platforms. And that's partially because it is effectively a standard platform for accepting payments. And that's driven largely by the preferences of the developers themselves who discovered that Stripe was just an easier way to accept payments than all the things that were available on the market up to that point. And then there's a major land grab element in the sense that once Stripe is built into the plumbing of these e-commerce sites, directly in the revenue path, directly in the critical path for how the business works, 
it tends to stay embedded thereafter. So as a result, we actually gave it a pretty strong network effects land grab score of eight, but not perfect because it doesn't have that classic sort of two-sided marketplace network effect deal. Does having Stripe as your payments processor get more valuable when other people use Stripe? Not really. So it's primarily that land grab element that helps out there. Now again, the same thing applies to the viral growth and distribution. When somebody checks out using Stripe, do they know that they're checking out using Stripe? No. The viral growth really comes from traditional word of mouth between different developers talking about, hey, what should I use to accept payments? Oh, I think Stripe is the easiest one. Really, let me check it out. Yeah, let's please do that. And then on the distribution side, by being an easier company to work with, Stripe eventually was able to get itself embedded into all of these shopping systems. So whether it was a Shopify or a Magento or even just built into the, the basic platforms like a Squarespace or a Wix or even a WordPress, Stripe just made itself the default way to accept payments. It became easier to do Stripe than just about anything else. And that allowed them to really do a great job on that viral growth and distribution. And we actually gave them a 9 out of 10 there. Yeah, and I, I remember when Stripe was just coming of age and sitting in a board meeting at a company and they were contemplating which payment system to use and Stripe came up as the, by far the best, not like a little bit better, but the ones that existed before Stripe were awful to use, horrible, arcane, terrible APIs and expensive. And Stripe came along with this beautiful, easy to use API that didn't suck and look where they are now. It's just a credible position that they've cut out for themselves. What would, it, it, would uh, Unreal Engine, for example, be another sort of example of something that was a platform that is embedded, that's mission critical and, and therefore is quasi blitz scalable. Is that, is that a, another example or are, are we, you know, is, can you think of any sort of embedded system this way or are there particular attributes of an embedded system that make it more or less blitz scalable? So I would agree that Unreal Engine really is blitz scalable. I think Unity is another thing that you could look at. And it really does boil down to you're trying to do something that has traditionally been difficult. And here someone comes along and makes it much easier, delivers a higher quality product. And it's aimed at a market of developers, people who really think carefully about making these choices. These are not like typical consumers or something. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. And they communicate with each other. There's those massive channels, websites, blogs, everywhere where they actually talk about these issues. So I think when you have a highly involved, highly educated audience that's making these important choices that tend to be persistent over time, it absolutely can be a blitz scaling situation. Right. Very instructive. Okay, so let's move on to product market fit with Stripe. Why do we even mention it? Of course, that's perfect. So we gave it a 10. Uh, we can move to market size. Uh, do you want to talk about market size? Because I know you love the market size here. I love the market size here. So back when I was at D.E. Shaw and Company, which of course is the secretive hedge fund that Jeff Bezos used to work for, one of the things that I came up with as a metaphor is what I call the river of money. And people often ask themselves, why do these Wall Street a-holes manage to make so much money? And my answer is the river of money theory. And the river of money theory basically says that money flows like a river. And when you're working at the river, when you're actively building the levees and canals and things like that, it's a lot easier for you to dip your own canteen down and pull some water up for yourself. So with Stripe, 
they are literally the, 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 the canal through which all the water flows. This is where all e-commerce payments are being sent. And so, of course, it's relatively easy for them to monetize. They just take a small piece of the transaction, and they are literally taxing almost 100% of the e-commerce that's going on in the world. So it is an incredible, gigantic, colossal 10 out of 10 market size. Yeah, and, and one of the oldest business models, just tax everything. Uh, great. So let's, uh, let's look at gross margin and then the scalability metrics. Talk about gross margin first. Obviously, pretty good here. Yep. Gross margin, also incredible, 10 out of 10, because their revenues are their piece of the take, their slice of the salami. And there is so little that needs to be done in terms of cost of goods sold. So it is pretty much close to 100% gross margin. Right. Organizational scalability, operational scalability. You have to serve the customers here, but just like any other software company, really, there's no extra work uh, just because you're Stripe. And we always give those guys tens. So, you but know, let me just, add this. Let me add this. Yeah. Stripe does an even better job. Do you know why? Because they are an API based company. It's not like there is a customer-facing payments terminal where human beings are making mistakes or wondering what to do. It's computers right. that are using Stripe. Computers that once the development has been done and debugged, just take care of it from then on out. So it's a remarkable model which dramatically reduces those customer service needs. Now, if something does go wrong, obviously you have to have customer service there. You're at the river of money. People are desperate to make sure that river keeps flowing. But because it's an API-based service, it just really reduces the frequency that that comes up. Yeah, so make it bulletproof and then set and forget. And uh, keep collecting money. That. And just watch the river roll in. Beautiful. Uh, so we love Stripe, but as Chris said, they don't get a perfect blitz scaling score. It's 82 instead of 100, which nobody ever gets 100. But um, 82, you know, that's a... That's a solid score. Anything above 80, we get excited about. And so Stripe certainly fits that. And no wonder they're doing so well. They've, they've been beautifully managed and it was a great idea, perfectly executed. So congratulations to the team at Stripe. They just raised another three quarters of a billion dollars, I think. Um, and and I understand why. I absolutely understand why, because we are currently in a pandemic moment when at least according to one Bank of America study that I saw, their cardholders had shifted their spending from 15% of credit card payments on e-commerce to 30%. So just a massive surge in e-commerce. And again, Stripe is effectively a small sales tax on all those e-commerce transactions. So of course, it's going to be in a good position right now to be able to raise more money, to continue building their business. Just an incredible company. And I think that one of the things that has enabled them to grow, you know, as opposed, even though they're not perfectly blitz scalable, the fact that their product market fit is so good. Like you said, when people were discussing in that board meeting, which service should we use? The answer was hands down, no brainer, use Stripe. And so that has allowed them to grow incredibly rapidly without having to say, for example, make Stripe free. They didn't need to make Stripe free. They could charge similar payment terms to everyone else and just be so much better and easier to work with that people would still choose them. That's the trick, though. So much better. A little better, eh. You know, they were, they were a whole different ballgame. And so here they are worth, you know, I, I think the valuation was just done and 30 billion or something. I, I, I should look that up before I speak it. 
but um, they, they, it's a it's an incredibly valuable company. What a great success story once again in Silicon Valley. And Patrick Collison, the founder there, one of the most thoughtful intellectual founders that's out there right now. And I'm just really happy that he is being recognized for the incredible job that he and his brother have done. Okay, moving on to props. Props is so different from Stripe. They're just getting going. It's a blockchain-based company. What they do is they enable apps to reward their users for actions that are taken within the app. So it's essentially a virtual currency within the app. And because it's blockchain-based, they can spend that virtual currency across other apps. So you can have this, you know, these props be a currency that's really used not just in a single siloed app, but across apps. So imagine you could use your frequent flyer points to buy dinner. Uh, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And even better than that, there's, a, there's another twist to it where if you're a, if you, you get a lot of props points, you, in addition to being able to use those props points for things you might value within apps, you also get some more of this virtual, it's more of the, um, the tokens that are issued by props in their blockchain. So the, the virtual currency actually has some network value that's uh, tradable, not uh, and so it's it's real money. You're getting equity in the network as you contribute to the network. So there's sort of a double effect here, which is unique to props. It's a seed stage company. They just raised $2 million from a group of investors that includes Union Square. And Union Square knows a lot about blockchain. I think they're a leading blockchain firm. Anybody would say that. So impressive backing, very early, just getting going, but... We like the idea, perfectly blitz scalable. Well, you know, certainly has strong network effects, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, so this is a fascinating deal. And that's why when we saw it, we we're like, oh, we really, this is a juicy one. We really want to talk about this one. From a network effects and land grab perspective, it's very strong. We gave it a 10 out of 10. And for it's a variety of obvious reasons. First of all, it's effectively a virtual currency. And currencies and payment systems have really strong network effects. Obviously, the more people who adopt it and accept it, the more valuable it becomes. So there's a strong element of network effect there. And then from the perspective of land grab, well, if you think about people establishing loyalty programs and rewards programs using props as the currency, once they're established, it's very difficult to change. People resist when they have a frequent flyer mile program or a rewards point program where they're like, oh, we're going to change the currency. That is a cue for people to rise up with pitchforks and torches. So it is very, very unusual for people to then change the currency once they've picked it. As a result, 10 out of 10. I got to correct something. I misspoke. So the ICO they just did was 2 million, but they raised 25 million back in February of 2018. So this is not a brand new business. They're not just getting going. They're up and running for sure with that 25 million. And um, they have money, as I said, from USV and from coin fund from Spice VC, GC, GSR ventures, borderless capital. So a decent syndicate formed around this deal. And, um, Let's move on to distribution. What do you think? So here there's some distribution, very little viral growth. The reason is it's not like you say, oh, 
I just got some props. Let me go out and tell my friends to get props too. There's no particular reason for you to do that necessarily. Maybe you could incentivize it. Bit of a stretch because again, it's a loyalty program currency. From a distribution perspective, what do you need to do? You need to go out there and you need to build it into all these different platforms. Are there some channels? Well, as we mentioned with Stripe, there could be a channel for an e-commerce site, like through a Shopify or something like that, but it's not nearly as easy and clear a thing. Every e-commerce provider needs to accept payments. Not every e-commerce provider is gonna create a loyalty program. As a result, the distribution just isn't gonna work as well as something like Stripe. So we ended up giving it a seven out of 10. I was on the board of a, a, a company that had to work with game publishers and the bigger game publishers wanted upfronts. They wanted a lot of money to, you had to buy your way onto their platform if you wanted any sort of exclusivity. So it's, it's not easy to do those big distribution deals. And I think, um, you know, they, they, they won't necessarily hold you hostage for money, but they're, you know, that those deals are going to take a while to cut. So yeah, I think seven out of 10 is, is, is probably the right way to think about it. Product market fit. Um, you know, we don't really know we're not users of the product, but we, we sort of took a guess at about eight. You want to say why we said eight? Yeah, so we certainly know that in the world of loyalty points, this is a pretty well-established dynamic. But flyer miles and credit card points, these are all things that consumers are proven to use and keep using, so that's great. But there's also another category of things that props might be used for in terms of loyalty for people who are readers or consumers or something like that. That's far less proven. Okay, so... We got to move on to market size. You're very excited about Stripe's market size, of course. And, you know, so what do you think about props as, as far as, you know, is this market really unbounded and, and, and just going to scale to infinity? Yeah, unfortunately, this just isn't as big an opportunity as Stripe is. Stripe, as I mentioned, the opportunity is essentially all e-commerce, which will eventually be all commerce. That's a pretty big opportunity. Here we're talking about loyalty points. And I remember when we were discussing this, I asked you the question, Scott, can you name all the $100 billion market cap companies that are loyalty points companies? Not that offer loyalty points, but whose primary business is loyalty points. And the answer is this is an ancillary thing. It is still a big market. Frequent flyer miles are huge. Credit card rewards are huge. These are all big things. They're just not core to the economy overarching big. They're not uh, Stripe in terms of payments big. They're not all automotive purchases big. They're not e-commerce big. So we went ahead and gave it an eight, which is good, but not great. Yeah. These are businesses that can scale really quickly that have very high gross margin, which we'll talk about next. But, um, you know, the, the actual market size is, makes it absolutely worth investing in the company. But you're probably not going to be that $100 billion public company blockbuster deal. Gross margin, I just mentioned it. You know, like, how do you think about that with virtual currency? 10 out of 10. And there's nothing better than being your own central banker because you have the ability to print money. You have the ability to set the price for it. It's amazing. 10 out of 10. Yeah. And scalability. Let's talk about, you know, how does an organization scale with the, with the revenue here? Yeah, so the beauty of it is that you don't have to scale your organization with the number of individual consumers. You're not handling the customer service. Your providers, your customers are. 
uh, you do have to provide some level of support to them. Obviously, whenever people are dealing with a virtual currency, the fact is people care about money. If it disappears, if they have a question, if they want to redeem it, they're going to end up calling customer support. And yep. uh, yeah, exactly. And that's going to result in some second line calls back to props. So it's not perfect. Uh, so from an org scalability perspective, you're going to be able to scale pretty well from a human side. We actually gave it 10 out of 10 because you just don't need that many people. But from an operations perspective, the other interesting thing is I actually think that there's two things in conflict here. I feel like the choice of making the, is this a blockchain product to some extent reduces the operational scalability because it is more difficult to build a performance blockchain system than it would be just to do something off a standard database. But on the other hand, going blockchain improves the product market fit because unlike what is typically the case where the currency is just arbitrary and can be taken away at any time by the underlying provider, the airline or the credit card company or what have you, when people are getting these props tokens, there's actually an independent existence, independent of the person handing out the rewards points. So I think it actually improves the product market fit. So I think it's fascinating. I don't actually know in the long run whether I think that the choice to use blockchain is a positive or a negative. It's borderline for me. Certainly a differentiator, though. And in this market, you need that. So I, I'm excited to watch this one and see where it ends up. It's a, it's a terrific innovation. And we'll see. Um, but so what's the final number? The final number. So we gave Stripe an 82. This is not as good. I think everybody was sensing that. Uh, 74 is where we end up. So a solid score. You know, like usually if it's enterprise software or something like that, we're down in the 40s or 50s where you don't have much network effect. You don't have much land grab. There's a solid network effect here. So we're going to be in the upper echelons, but we're just not going to cross over that 80 boundary, which gets us really excited. We're still below that with 74. I think if they really figure out their product market fit and the distribution starts to be less, you know, a little less friction in the distribution, then we can get this, this company above 80 and perhaps consider it for investment. So that was a fun one. Now, this one we also had a lot of fun discussing. It's a company called Trash Warrior, and we love the name, and we talk about names a lot. I think you could have called this Trash, you know, Trash Bin, Trash whatever. Trash Warrior just sort of elevates it to, uh, <laughs> to uh, an echelon that I, I think is, is a lot of fun. Um, Anyway, so Trash Warrior is a two-sided marketplace. We always get excited about two-sided marketplaces. They just inherently have network effects. And so, and if you get a viral one, then it's super exciting. And this one is sort of weak on both of those. So we thought it was an interesting example of a two-sided marketplace that didn't get a high score. And to explain why that is, because there's a lot of nuance to network effects. There's nuance to distribution. And so, Chris, let's dig in here. I uh, talk about network effects here because at first blush, it seems like there should be a lot. Absolutely. And by the way, let me again reinforce that we love not just the name, but the idea of the service because who doesn't have trash that they need picked up, an old mattress they need taken away or what have you. And this is a service which I would absolutely use. And I think you, Scott, would absolutely use as well. And in that sense, it's great. 
But oh, I should have mentioned that. I forgot to mention what the company did. So thank yes. you for doing that. And I have recently had stuff that I wanted hauled away. And I called up 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And they said, yeah, for $450, we'll roll a truck to your house. I'm like, well, I don't want to pay $450. I've just got a few things over here. And Trash Warrior will just take a few things for 50 bucks, which is an enormous improvement on what the current options are. So love the business. So one of the things that I've talked about in network effects is just understanding that there are certain factors that go into the nature of a transaction for a two-sided marketplace that tell you whether it's a truly winner-take-most or winner-take-all marketplace. And the example I've always used is to compare Airbnb with Uber with Lime, right? Three very different kinds of transactions. And of course, Airbnb is the one that works the best, even though Airbnb, of course, is hurting right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, its overall market dynamics are superior to the other ones. And it's for a follow following reasons. First of all, the average transaction size is large. An Airbnb transaction is typically going to be hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars. And so as a result of it, it's a high consideration transaction as well, where the person who is making the transaction, the guest who's booking the room, is going to look very carefully. It's not just a commodity product. They're going to look at each individual apartment or room and then decide for themselves which one is the best fit for them, which is why the reviews and all those things are so important. So if you think about that, then you could say, wow, okay, that is an example of something where having the broadest possible selection of potential rooms or apartments is really important and where I'm willing to, because of the value of that transaction, I'm willing to spend the time to actually dig in and figure it out. In contrast, something like an Uber, it's a relatively smaller transaction, probably measured in tens of dollars, and it's largely a commodity. As I like to point out, how often do you call an Uber and then you see the driver's face and say, ah, I don't like that driver's face, I don't think the reviews are good enough, cancel. Right? That never happens. And so as a result, it really is more of a commodity product as opposed to a differentiated product. And so once you get to the point where there's enough drivers around to get you a car in five minutes or less, having more really doesn't help. And so the network effect exists, but really isn't particularly strong because once you get to a certain point, it really doesn't provide additional benefit. And then if you look at something like a, a Lime, one of these bike sharing companies, it's even worse because the product is a pure commodity. Every bike is the same. The only difference is where they're located. And when it comes to the transaction size, it's minimal. It's $1 to $2 instead of 10 to 20 or $30. And so all of a sudden, you're even less willing to consider it. And finally, from a network effects perspective, all it takes is for people to dump a bunch of bikes on the street. So it's really hard to have a differentiated position when everyone can come along, raise $10 million, and dump bikes on the street. So that's an example of how two-sided marketplaces can act very differently depending on the dynamics of the transactions. Now let's look at Trash Warrior. Well, from a Trash Warrior perspective, they're hampered by the fact that you're having people come and take trash away. Do you care if when they're taking away your old mattress, they do a particularly good job of, of making sure it doesn't drag on the ground? Or when they're taking away your garbage bags, they do a particularly good job of making sure the garbage bags are stacked neatly in your truck. You don't care. It's garbage. And so as a result, these are small transactions. They're sort of Uber-sized transactions, 50 bucks, 40 bucks here and there. You don't really care about how good a job they do as long as the stuff is gone. And what makes it even harder from the perspective of a competitive, a competitive moat, Uber has a competitive moat 
bike Lime has some competitive mode simply because you need to have enough drivers on the road because you want a car, you want it in five minutes. You want a bike, you need the bike within two blocks. When it comes to getting your garbage taken away, it's very rare that you're like, I have to have this garbage taken away in the next 30 minutes or it is all useless. I'd rather just keep it. In fact, what you do with Trash Warrior is you book someone to come, you give them a window, almost like a cable guy coming over to fix the house. And so as a result, you don't need massive supply in order to have liquidity. Liquidity really isn't an issue because pretty much you can get picked up anytime during the day. So as a result of these things, Trash Warrior just doesn't have that strong instead of network effects or land grabs. It's too easy for someone else. And instead of Trash Warrior, it's Trash Spartan or Trash Ninja. And it's like, well, well, should I use Trash Warrior or Trash Ninja? Eh, it doesn't really matter. It's all based doesn't really on matter. You know, you're right. And the thing I, I cared about as a, as a customer of, you know, somebody wanted something all the way, I cared about price. Price, 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 price. That's all I cared about. It was a three-headed alien that was going to take it. As long as it was, you know, a legal dumping service, I, I didn't care what the person or, or alien looked like. I just wanted the trash gone. And whoever would do it for the cheapest price in a time frame that I, you know, was reasonable, that, that's what I really want. So if I were to advise this company, I would say, guys, why don't, if you could just make this a real marketplace where the, uh, the service provider side is bidding, and the lowest bid wins, then I think you might have an even better business. So that's uh, that's how I might counsel them. Let's move on though. Let's go, let's talk about uh, distribution. Yeah, so viral growth and distribution. Well, how on earth do you get people to know about this? Uh, when you got your trash hauled away, Scott, did you immediately post on Twitter, I just got my trash hauled away by Trash Warrior? Not very likely, right? This is not, not something- very likely that lends itself to that kind of natural word of mouth. And there's no particular incentive for me to refer other people. So it's not, again, garbage is between you and the dump. That's about it. There's no socialization involved. And then from a distribution standpoint, yeah, you know what? Distribution, you could potentially, like if it's a big apartment complex, you could have people put out flyers. Hey, by the way, if you want stuff taken away, call Trash Warrior. But that's really not a true distribution channel. It's not something that is going to really help you grow into a massive business. So this one actually, a fairly low score, we gave it a five. And we usually don't give scores that low. Yeah, this just feels like a one-by-one, one really difficult customer acquisition play. So if anybody can think of a great way to uh, to distribute this product, maybe in conjunction with other products or in conjunction with... Uh, the local municipality, for example, might be a good way to do it. But as of now, I think five is the best we can do. So of the, you know, of the possible 58 points that they could have gotten with these first two <clears throat> elements, it's 19. So 19 out of 58, they're way behind the eight ball as far as scoring goes. They do better the rest of the way down. But those two things, which really determine the, the network effects and viral growth, and, and scalable distribution, they, those are the things that really determine blitz scalability and to some degree scalability. And they have not done well on those first two. Product market fit, we kind of love. They're still just figuring it out. So, and I, you know, I, I made a suggestion for even better products. So I think we're not all the way there on product market fit, but it's darn good because it's way better than what's out there. Just like Stripe was way better than it was out there. This one is way better. So, you know, I think they get a nine for that. They can do, 
even better than they're doing, but the solid performance on product market fit so far. Market size, Chris, you've been talking about market size, so I'll let you continue to do that. Yeah, I think this comes back to, again, you know, when I look at the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and the list of the most valuable companies, does it go, it's Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Facebook. No, that's not the way it works, right? The bottom line is trash hauling is not a gigantic leading the market kind of industry. It is a big industry, right? It's not like some sort of crazy niche, like only one in a thousand well, people. Well, waste management, to be fair, waste management is a yeah. very large business, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking no. about taking away everybody's trash every week. We're talking about the sort of specialty once a year sort of trash haul that consumers need to do. Exactly. So it's big enough to support multiple publicly traded companies but it just isn't one of these massive economy changing things. So we actually gave it a, an eight. That might actually be generous. Maybe we should even go a little bit lower now that you mentioned how infrequently people need this. But you know, that being said, we've already kicked them quite a bit. I'm not going to kick them further while they're down. Well, but I, I like the eight because they also want to serve small business and small business, I think has much more frequent and, and, uh, larger trash hauling needs that aren't served by their current uh, set of providers. So I, I, I feel like small business is a real opportunity for them. They'll have more than once a year, could be once a week, once a month. Uh, it, it just, I think their market size will expand with that. So I'm, I'm willing to stick with the eight and assume that they're going to make their way into small business and serve that market. Yep. Gross margin, they're a marketplace. So 10 out of 10. This is 10 out of 10. This is why we love marketplaces. 10 out of 10 for gross margin. 10 out of 10 also for organizational scalability because at the end of the day, they're not touching the trash. They're just helping other people with it. That's right. And that's why we don't like food delivery so much. They're touching the food. And boy, you know, that's, uh, that's tough. That's a tough uh, business to run. Um, for a scalability point of view. So operation scalability... Eight out of ten. Yeah, we debated this one a bit because in some sense they're not touching the trash. So why is there going to be an operational scalability challenge? But on the other hand, uh, the fact is you're dealing with something that's actually harder in many ways than, say, like an Uber. So if you take an example in Uber, you have drivers. Guess what? Their cars are set up just to pick up and drop off people. That's what a car does. But, you know, garbage disposal, you got garbage, maybe it smells, maybe it's bad. All of a sudden, you have to do a little more work. You can't just assume that whoever signs up is going to be capable of doing this. You've got to do more onboarding than you would with somebody who's just Uber driving because everyone knows how to do that. Everyone's picked up their friend from the airport. So that probably adds some operational complexity, and it takes it down from a perfect 10 out of 10. Right, and the total score, therefore, is a 54. So what started out with a, wow, here's the two-sided marketplace. They're going to kill it. It turned out to be a, oh, boy, this company should not blitz scale. There's a, a lot of friction in the distribution. Customer acquisition is going to be expensive. The product is great, but people only use it once or twice a year. Um, you know, the network effects are... They exist, but they're not sustainable because anybody can just stand up a business like this. So it's not a real barrier to entry the way you want network effects to be. It's important to dig into these businesses and really sort of on a second order, just understand if the elements that make up the business 
are truly defensible, if they're truly differentiated, if the, if the market is truly large, and it's just what seems at first to be a very attractive blitzscaling opportunity may, on second look, end up with a score like 54. And again, this does not mean it's not a great service. Both Scott and I would use this service, but not every great product is blitzscalable, not every business even, even if it could be a good business, is blitz scalable. And this one just does not seem to fit into that category. Yeah, with this one, I would pay such close attention to the unit economics because you spend so much publicizing it to acquire a customer. And then how often do they use it? It's sort of like auto glass, you know, like it's just how often do you need a new windshield? It's just, you know, once every five years, but you have to constantly stay in the consumer's face. And so when the need arises, you actually are the one that they call up. And boy, that's a, that's a tough unit economic equation to, to make balance in your favor. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, sorry, this month. So those are the April deals we chose to discuss. Not all the highest scoring deals that we want to pursue as an investor, but a lot of the most instructive ones. So, and it was a really fun conversation today, Chris. Thanks for having me in. No, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Again, hope everyone learned a little bit more about assessing blitz scalability. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, when we come back in June to cover the May deals, it will be very instructive to see what the impact has been on the industry from COVID-19. I'm looking forward to that one. Scott, see you in a month. Stay healthy, Chris.